Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Melissa Lima, your North Coast and Organic Field Services representative, bringing you episode 38 of season two this week. And in addition to our weekly market update, Darby and I were excited to sit down with California Dairy's Director of Sustainability, Aubrey Bentoncourt, to talk about some new developments with the state and federal water projects here in California's Central Valley. Before we jump into this exciting episode, we wanted to share a few reminders with our producers. For producers in the North Coast Water Board region, a reminder that CDQAP will be hosting three workshops next week to assist producers with annual reporting. Make sure to register for those workshops by Monday, October 11th at 5 p.m. They're in-person meetings in Humboldt and Sonoma counties, and if you'd like the link, it is provided in the show notes and is also in our update this week. For all dairy and cattle producers in California, WUD and our partners at Blimling and Associates and EverAg will be hosting an in-person seminar series the week of October 19th to provide information about USDA's Pasture, Rangeland, and Forage Insurance Program, which has a deadline coming up this November. We'll also link that RSVP information in our show notes, so be sure to check those out. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you in person at these exciting events in the coming weeks. Let's jump right in with Tiffany. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Hi folks, hope you had a great week. All in all, it was a pretty good one in the dairy markets. Uh, We lost a little bit on the block cheese price, uh, down four cents to the week, but we still closed at $1.81, a pretty decent level. Um, Contact supply, say supplies of fresh cheddar are adequate, but not necessarily ample. We did see some product make its way to Chicago um, that failed to drum up buyer interest, and we saw that little bit of slip down in in the block price. However, barrels found some lift. Um, We settled there at $1.79, up four and a half cents. Um, Some reports of a little bit more tightness in the barrel markets out on the countryside. We are seeing cooler temperatures um, bring a little bit better cow comfort across areas, uh, particularly in the Midwest, as autumn unfolds. So that spot milk price um, that we watch in the upper Midwest as kind of a barometer, um, we did see that ease a little bit. Um, averaged $1.25 under class for spot milk price in the Midwest. Um, that is that is down um, from a plus a dollar twenty five last year and plus a dollar thirteen on average. So something to keep an eye on. It seems like we might be seeing a little bit more milk seasonally um, in in certain areas that were hit by heat uh, last month. The latest dairy products report was released by USDA this week, so we got a read on August production levels. Uh, cheese, total cheese production was up 4.4% year over year. Um, output from July and August was down 0.3%. That's a little ahead of the, of the normal 2.7 million pound um, decrease that we normally see between July and August over the past five years. We're seeing some good promotional activity of cheese at retail level. So those retail figures are really holding strong. We're up 12% uh, for the week ending September 26 compared to 
2019 levels. We also got some really encouraging export data. U.S. cheese exports reached 81 million pounds in August. Um, that's up 18% over over year ago levels. Mexico and South Korea were our top destinations, um, buying 44% of that product through August. With all the data in hand, stocks, production, trade data, our estimates show that cheese uh, consumption in the U.S. was up 3.8% for the first months, eight months of this year. Uh, so some pretty good showing. Moving over to butter, um, seasonal demand is, is robust, um, but we still seem to have plenty of product out in the countryside to make its way to Chicago. We've been trading between $1.70 and $1.85 for quite a while now. We dipped below that range midweek, but we're able to kind of increase back up to $1.72 to close the week, uh, down 2.75 cents. Butter production for August declined 15.6% um, year over year in August as heat hit some major Western producing regions. Uh, here too, retail butter sales are okay. They were a little soft at the end of September, rising just 1% versus the same period in 2019. But we expect in the uh, coming weeks, those figures to pick back up as holiday buying kicks into gear. And likewise with cheese, with all the data in hand, our estimates show domestic consumption uh, reaching about 1.3 million pounds year to date. Uh, that's up 2% on butter over last year's level. So some really strong domestic consumption figures. Moving over to powder, we had another global dairy trade event out of Oceana. Uh, results for powder were mixed. Skim milk powder held fairly steady, up a little bit uh, to $1.50 a pound. Whole milk powder, however, declined. On the heels of that higher skim milk powder price, as well as reports of Mexico kind of being in the market, we are seeing our domestic nonfat uh, spot prices take a nice little run higher. Uh, we finished the week at $1.46, up a whopping 6.25 cents for the week. We haven't seen those levels since back into 2014. So very much welcome to news on the class four um, price side of the equation. We are hearing a little bit more milk making its way into balancing plants. Um, but like I said, Mexico is still seems to be in the market buying, which is kind of keeping that market balanced uh, to well-supported. We um, also saw really stellar export numbers there in powder for August as well um, at 174 million pounds. That was up 15% over prior year levels and sales to Mexico were up 40% on the year. We did see powder production lower for August, just like butter. Those Western producers were down a bit on the heat. Um, even so, we still have plenty of inventory. We're up 2.8% year over year on powder inventories, so still, still plenty there. Uh, finally, all eyes remain on harvest uh, grains. Nearby corn futures fell on expectations that next week's supply and demand estimates will come in a little above expectations. Uh, while soybeans found little momentum after some robust export numbers on corn harvest, we're at 29%, up 18% uh, the week prior. And soybean harvest advanced to 34%, up from 16% last year. Uh, one shout out on uh, futures markets for 2022. 
Uh, with these rallies we've seen, particularly in the class four and a little bit on class three, sitting at some pretty nice levels out there for the first quarter. So class three, almost ringing the $18 bell and class four in that kind of mid $17 range. So if you, uh, the producers haven't looked at any milk coverage for early next year, might be a good time to uh, start taking a look at your options. Have a wonderful week. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Darby and I are joined by Western United Dairies and actually the California Dairy Industries Director of Sustainability, Aubrey Betancourt, today. Welcome back to the show, Aubrey. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Um, we ran an article in our update this last week that we thought maybe deserved a little bit more explanation and back and forth on the podcast. And it, it reminded me of the interesting world of milk pricing. If this isn't your wheelhouse and it's not something you're dealing with every day, it may be a little bit confusing. So it, the water news that came out this week is that President Biden's administration is requesting reinitiation of consultation on the long-term operation of the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project. So it sounds like a really big deal. Can you kind of run us through a little bit about what all of that means and how it applies to our dairy farmers? Sure, it's kind of like weasel words for what? You know, it's, it's a, that's a lot of big words around something. So it, um, all of that actually does mean something. Uh, and, and we all are, let, let's start kind of at the beginning. We're all fully aware of our two water systems, Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, and that they often work in coordination with each other. And in some cases they share infrastructure with each other. So, um, you know, like San Luis Reservoir is both state and federal. Right. Um, and so the operations orders or LTO, long-term operations orders, are uh, the proposed operations from the federal side. This is this, the Bureau of Reclamation. These are their plans for how to operate the system uh, for long-term. And they review and renew those over time. Uh, so we had another set of them going back to 2008, 2009. Uh, as we all know, that also, uh, before we get into too much detail, so, so what happens is the Bureau puts forward, these are our long-term operations. Those long-term proposed operations have to be reviewed for environmental compliance. That includes under the Endangered Species Act, as well as under the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA. So ESA and NEPA. Now, because the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project often work in coordination with each other, when the Bureau of Reclamation proposes its operations, plan. It does so that also loops in how it will coordinate with the state. And so oftentimes what happens is when, when, when the Bureau writes its proposal, it brings the state in through the Department of Water Resources as what's called an applicant. Um, There's someone who is a direct effect, right? So in that regard, the applicant gets to be in the room, gets to engage with the science, gets to engage with the operations plan as it is being drafted, um, as it goes through its process. So we start with drafting of the operations operations plans, that operations plans gets handed to our environmental protection agencies 
at um, the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service or our biological agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, which is at the Department of the Interior, and the National Marine Fisheries, uh, which is at the Department of Commerce, for review under the Endangered Species Act. And this whole process is in accordance with the National Environmental Protection Act. It's got a set steps it has to go through to achieve what's called NEPA compliance. Mm -hmm. What they're trying to find out is, is the new proposed operations, what is the effect those proposed operations will have on species that are listed as protected or their critical habitat that is listed as protected. So that's the, that's the, the general state of play, the general uh, setting of what's happening. Now, now let's talk about it in the specific confines here of, of why all of a sudden, uh, or not all of a sudden, uh, Reclamation has announced it would like to reinitiate consultation. What does that mean? Well, what they're saying is they're going to update their operations plan and they believe that the updates to those, what they call the proposed actions in that mm -hmm. update will require additional review from the biological agencies, meaning under the last operations, these proposed actions were not taken into consideration is what they're saying by the biological agencies. So they're saying we would like to reinitiate consultation because we believe there's going to be proposed actions that were not previously reviewed and they need to be reviewed by the scientific agencies. So that's where we're at. Now, why is that significant in 2021? Well, going backwards, mm -hmm. in 2019, the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, National Marine Fisheries and Fish and Wildlife Service completed a consultation on a new long-term operations plan and had two new biological opinions, the scientific review for impact on the species, completed uh, and turned over as one federal decision, meaning the two science agencies signed a joint agreement on it not causing any harm or effect. Okay. And so they just redid their operations plan. That's why this is kind of a, a significant um, announcement, because they've only been operating under their current plan for two years. Right. So, so I'm going to pause there and let you ask questions. There's more to it, but I'm going to pause there and, 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 and let you ask, but, and, to, and to put that into context, that 2019 operations plan that was completed and reviewed and found compliant under the Endangered Species Act and the National Environmental Protection Act had not been updated since 2008, 2009 with the most famous biological opinions on the Delta smelt and the winter run Chinook, uh, green sturgeon and uh, Pacific killer whale. So we've had 10 years uh, of updating science and data and implement, you know, integrating that new information into the 2019 operations plan and scientific review only for two years later to have it redone. Right. And the, the first question that comes to mind is, well, maybe this is just something that happens at the changeover of administrations. It doesn't sound like that's the case. So do we have any idea what may have prompted this new reinitiation of consultation? You know, there's, um, it's the prerogative of any administration to be able to do this. Um, right. So there's, there's that. Uh, if you read the letter from the Bureau of Reclamation sent to the two consulting agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service and, and um, uh, National Marine Fisheries, they indicate a couple of things in there. They believe that proposed action uh, that, that uh, well, let's start with themselves. They believe that in order to satisfy an executive order from the Biden administration, 
uh, around climate change that they have to reinitiate consultation and redo their operations plans. So they believe in order to satisfy an executive directive, they have to do this. Part two, they also indicate in their letter that they believe that the state is going to propose action or will be proposing actions to uh, uh, the operations of the state water project that would have a direct impact on Central Valley project operations and that were not taken into consideration under their biological opinion. So they're also indicating that the state may be proposing something that's going to require this as well. And thirdly, something we didn't quite touch on in, in the story of how we got here, is they believe that this is actively going to help them receive, uh, achieve what they call a voluntary um, reconciliation with the state project. See, in the 2019 biological opinion and long-term operations plan um, were uh, issued, uh, an, a lawsuit was filed with the state of California and there was a division set at the time where the state of California did not accept the operations plan from the Central Valley Project. And so for the first time in history, we bifurcated the systems where they were operating um, independent of each other. Now, in many ways, that's very dire because they share infrastructure and their ability to collaborate and utilize each other's infrastructure is what is allowed for system flexibility. For us as water users, especially agricultural water users, especially water users south of the Delta, so our rural communities, even our urban communities, both on the state water project and the federal water project, that flexibility and that coordination uh, between the two projects is vital to our existence um, because we have, as we know and have talked about before, an undersized and outdated infrastructure with undersized and outdated rules and operations, right? And so the, the most flexibility we can get out of these two systems is, is necessary. And, and so when, when they're, right, exactly. Yeah. And so when, when, they're, when they're at odds with each other for the first time and they're bifurcated, it goes into this ad hoc coordination, um, which is disjointed and doesn't lend itself to long-term certainty, right? So, so what the letter from Reclamation is indicating is that they believe they need to update their operations in order to bring them back into reconciliation with the state project. So this, there's, there's a couple things at play here um, that are indicated in that letter. There's a lot of things that are not revealed yet um, because there is pending litigation. Um, parts of that litigation have been kicked out. Um, federal judges have said that, that the um, previous operations plan from 2019 and the science that went into it absolutely stood, um, that there was no conflict or um, uh, there was no division between the two agencies. They signed a joint federal decision saying, you know, Fish and Wildlife and National Marine Fisheries both signed off and said, we do not find adverse um, modification or negative effect of these operations plans on our species or our habitat conservation. With that, uh, there was also a massive investment made in 2019 that went with that. Bureau of Reclamation committed billions of dollars over 10 years towards supporting habitat, um, and creating what we call um, uh, adaptive management um, practices within the system. And, and I'll pause there again because adaptive management is so critical to our ability to manage our resources going forward and achieving environmental uh, 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 success and prosperity as well. So I guess the kind of big picture question when you're a dairy producer is, what does this mean 
for users of this water or this, these water systems? And, and that's maybe a question we can't answer right now, but it seems like it could create some hurdles for folks compounded by the current weather and drought situation that we're in. Yeah, timing is definitely um, of concern. Um, and the reason I say that is, is we're desperate, again, what are we desperately seeking? And they sound like they're at odds with each other, but they're not. We're desperately seeking with our infrastructure, <clears throat> obviously for, you know, developing more supply that can come in a lot of different ways. And we've had that conversation on the podcast before. Sure. Um, but independent of that, um, we're desperately seeking flexibility in operation and we are desperately seeking certainty in supply. So, you know, that, that speaks to the, your point as a water, you know, as a, as a producer, as a landowner, as a manager of an operation on the ground, making day-to-day -day decisions, we can't make those decisions or rather we make those decisions based on what we know. And if we don't know what our water supply is doing, we can't make those decisions or it makes it really hard for us to make those decisions. We're making them with one arm tied behind our back or one eye gouged out, you know, gouged out. It, we're half blind, right? We're flying blind. Yeah. Water being the most critical of our land management decision-making, I would argue, but I'm a water geek. So I'm always going to advocate for that. But um, so what this does is, you know, the question becomes, does it lend itself to more uncertainty? Um, yes, in some ways. Uh, we have yet to see kind of what's going to happen with the litigation part. I would expect something about that being announced in the in coming weeks, um, because I, I could definitely see where a reinitiation of this consultation with the with the services could could be a reason to say, okay, we're going to kick it out of court, let the agencies handle it. Mm -hmm. um, but let's, I don't want to, that's speculation. So let's let that play out and see what happens. That's something to watch. We'll put that on the watch for this list. The other thing that's important to realize is this is a process. And again, like I said at the beginning, every administration has this prerogative. Um, the, uh, the important part is, I think, engagement uh, and accountability and transparency in the process. That applicant status of the Department of Water Resources and anyone, and I'm still looking into the details, but anyone who becomes directly affected as, as a result of needing to be a recipient of that water, who manages that water, um, that definition I'm, I'm still working on, but I would imagine it includes our water districts and things like that. They can, they have the ability to apply to be an applicant and be in the room. And so what is important going forward is twofold. One is what information is being considered. Mm -hmm. um, what's important about what happened in 2019 when the last reconsultation was done um, was that it was finally incorporating 10 years of information, 10 years of science, 10 years of data that hadn't been allowed to be incorporated into the operations of the system. So again, it's these cumbersome rules that lend itself to the inflexibility of our water supply and our water manager's ability to maximize supply, protect from flooding and provide for the environment and for people because they were bound by rules that were 10 years old and they couldn't take into account real-time information. Right. One of the biggest things that came out of the 2019 um, uh, long-term operations plan and biological opinions was the ability to do adaptive management and real-time information integration and management and operations. 
allowing for a little more flexibility. That wasn't allowed before. The other thing that was important was it was looking back and really what this whole process is about is it saying, okay, we've been operating under this set of operations orders for 10 years. How did it do? What worked? What didn't? And then write a new set of operations orders based on that information. What worked? What didn't? Did the goal, was the goal set right? How did we set the goal? Did we achieve it? Did we not? Do we need to reset that? Do we need to set new operations in order to get us there? That was what was important about 2019. What's interesting about now doing it again in 2021 is there hasn't really been enough time to see what's working and what's not. A good example is a life cycle of a salmon is at least three years. Yeah. We've only had two, right? So there's been a gap here. As we head into a, a dry period, we've already had one horrible pretty bad year we're going to go into what's probably going to be an even worse year and droughts don't start overnight and they certainly don't end overnight and they really don't start overnight in the reclaimed west and they certainly don't end overnight in the reclaimed west so the timing of this is the second big component here yeah which is how quickly can they do this because the longer we don't have an idea of how we're going to work together when it does rain how the two projects are going to interact with each other when it does rain um, the more we handcuff ourselves in a drought, we're not able to get ourselves out, or we, we, we at least work against ourselves in the attempt to get ourselves out. Now, there, yes, there's all of this bureaucratic layer and legal stuff and science that gets in the way of managers, right? The water wielders want to wield water. And the funny thing is, is they, they literally share a building. Department of Water Resources and Bureau of Reclamation are like on the same floor sometimes. So they can walk down the hall and have a conversation. It's about, you know, so they're doing the best they can within the bounds of the rules that they're allowed to to operate in. What's so important about having what we call LTO, long-term operations, is it's like, okay, here's the rules and regulations that we have to play in. Okay, now we have, do we have the flexibility to maneuver within that? And that's really the certainty that we're after. So how quickly can we get to that point? Is there going to be some interim operations agreement that buys us time to get to that point? Typically, that's what happens. Um, and, and so that will be whatever shred of, of certainty we can get out of that. Um, and the, the, the process then is, like I said, how quickly can they get it done? Under previous NEPA rules um, that were completed in, in the last four years, NEPA had to be done within two years. It was, a, it was written into the, into the statute, said will be done in two years. And you had to hold that timeline uh, in order to force, um, you know, the beast of government to move and to force us to address real issues of environmental concern in real time, not drag it out for forever. Um, you know, we can, science is dynamic and information and data is dynamic, but that's why we have review processes over time. We have to, at some point, move on. And that was the point of, of kind of that two-year period was to not lock things in limbo uh, and, and be in this indecisive state for forever, but to require us to deal with the heavy, hard issues uh, in a set time frame in order to, to expel good science, good information, get good review, and get things implemented so we can see what's working and what's not. Um, this, it's interesting to me that, that on a Friday, Bureau of Reclamation announced it wants to reinitiate consultation, something that I don't think anybody's surprised by, but the timing is interesting. And then on the following Monday and Tuesday, it's announced that um, they're going to update the NEPA rules. So 
we're waiting for that to be published this week so we can take a look at, okay, well, what are we changing? Are we still on a two-year timeline or are you saying this can be open-ended and it's going to take forever? And we're looking as water users and as our districts and managers and applicants and recipients of, you know, the direct beneficiaries, um, the, the rate payers, the contractors, right? We pay for it. What we are trying to figure out is, do we have any way or metric of accountability so we can start holding the process accountable? Because at this point, that's really what you're doing is you're, you're working the process. And I think that to me is the biggest message to our dairymen, to uh, anybody who's a water user out there is, understand that the process allows for that engagement. Um, it's about our being engaged in it and, um, and having that right and exercising that right. The, the legal channels are there to guide and protect and, and that's something I've had to learn too, um, is as much as I want to say the system is screwed up and, and, it, and it comes after us and it's horrible. Yeah, in some ways it is, but sometimes you got to get in there and you utilize it and you master it as best you can until you have the opportunity to change it, to make it the way you need it to be, or you make it the way to, to hold it accountable. And that really is about, I think, what we as water users, uh, as dairymen, as landowners, as members, of, as contractors at these districts, is make sure our districts are engaging in this process and holding that system accountable and holding that process accountable because we do have information over the last, well, since 2008, 2009, 10 plus years now. And we wanna make sure that information is being integrated um, and you know, what's good needs to stay. If something needs to be changed, let's make sure it's changing for the good, for the operational flexibility and for the environmental prosperity. Um, you know, I think the worry is, are we going in with a scalpel or are we going in with a hatchet? And um, that's the process we have to roll up our sleeves in and be engaged in, or our water districts too. Well, thanks, Aubrey. I, I really appreciate this explanation. I know I've read the art, I put the, the update together this last week and I read the article and I read the letter and I just feel like that was so much more of a depth of, of understanding. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain that. And I'm sure we'll have more updates going forward. Um, kind of as we wrap things up, is there anything else our producers should know? On this subject, um, <laughs> keep your ears perked. I mean, it's, this is, this is, it's going to get noisy. Um, and like I said, the timing is just, um, you know, especially understanding the, the water world that we're in and, and the water crisis that we're in the middle of, and then for this to be on top of it. Um, look, I think complaining about a water crisis in California is like complaining the sky is blue at this point. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's par for the course. I think the important thing our producers need to know is, um, you know, from a Western perspective, from the cattle council's perspective, from my perspective and the role that I'm filling, um, my job is to track this, to monitor this, and to be looking out for industry in this, and to make sure that uh, those involved in that process understand what our producers need, and to be advocating for what our producers need to stay farming, and to stay dairying, to stay ranching, um, and so, you know, and our communities to stay viable and vibrant as well, and so there's going to be parts of this where, you know, likely we're not involved, um, but we're absolutely going to be here to support you all, our producers, in this process and understanding it, understanding what your options are and making sure that we get the resources on the ground to you all uh, so that regardless of what is going on with this, um, we're looking to, you know, the old phrase, belt and suspenders, right? We, we got to work with our water community and make sure they're, they're looking out for us too. We're going to inform them of what they need to know about what our lives are like and the decisions we have to make as water users in the dairy and, and cattle communities and, and vice versa. We're going to work to make sure that outside of that, 
we're maximizing all the resources and opportunities and policy opportunities we have in order to continue to provide resources. So regardless of what's happening in that kind of other world of water management, uh, we're getting resources on the ground to our producers to keep you guys farming as best we can. Well, thanks again, Aubrey. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. It's the water world. It wouldn't be fun if we weren't talking about it like this. <laughs> Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. We want to thank Aubrey Betancourt and Tiffany LaMandola for being on this week's episode. Please remember that you can rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. If you have any questions, you can email us at wud.pod at gmail.com. You can reach Melissa at mlema at wudairies.com. And I can be reached at darby at wudairies.com. Have a great week, everyone. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.